to What the Fertility Season 2. This morning, we are so excited to sit down with Jennifer Gobrek. She was born with MRKH and underwent a uterine transplant. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me and letting me share um, my story and journey with having a deceased donor uterus transplant. Yeah, thank you so much for um, sharing, you know, deceased versus living donor. And I know we're going to get into that um, and just the the details of how everything kind of unfolded for you. But um, obviously being born with MRKH, that's like a pretty young diagnosis, right? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with Mayer-Rokitansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome when I was 17, um, you know, a lot, you hear a lot of stories with women with MRKH, their stories are going to be a little similar is that, you know, you're a teenager, you haven't gotten your period yet, you're not really sure why you kind of get shipped around to a lot of doctor's appointments. And then finally, you're given this diagnosis. And as a teenager, like that's just not something that you're thinking about at all. Like to be told at 17, you don't have a uterus. I, it's such a hard thing to process. Um, you know, what does that mean for family planning? What does that mean for the rest of my life? Like I totally thought I, I was, you know, quote unquote normal. And here I am, like my whole life now is very going to be very different because of this diagnosis. Um, and I have type one MRKH. So I was born without a uterus, um, and without a cervix, but, you know, there are two types of MRKH, you know, some women might only have one kidney, they might not even have a vaginal canal, there's other health concerns with type two. So, you know, I do like to just like reference like what type I have and kind of my experiences with it. Yeah, that, and I heard you allude to it saying like, you know, not getting a menstrual cycle, is that typically probably the first sign that something might be off? Yeah, that that usually is like, you know, you still have ovaries. So, um, you know, you still have that like, um, kind of monthly feeling, but there's no bleeding. So there's no uterus, there's no cervix, nothing's leaving the body. So, you know, that, that, um, the, your ovaries kind of just sort of when the eggs go, they just sort of dissipate into your body. And like, that's kind of the, the big red flag is there's no bleeding externally. So yeah, what's going on there? <laughs> I, love, I thank you for like mentioning that because obviously, so I didn't include it in your intro, but you went through IVF. And so obviously to undergo IVF, you have to have the eggs and ovaries. So that is like a big clarifying standpoint of it's just the uterus that's missing. Correct. Yeah. Uterus and cervix okay. in my case. Um, and as I said, you know, other people might have different situations, but for the type one MRKH I have, I really just didn't have a uterus or a cervix. And um, so what are the statistics in that for women? Because I was sharing this morning with like my sister-in-law and I'm like, it's, it is a rare disease, but I feel like I hear about it more and more. And is disease the right, it's probably not the right term. Maybe diagnosis. syndrome, I guess, is more the way they would, they would phrase that. Um, but we still kind of recognize the rarity of it on like rare disease day, things like that. Um, but I would say that it's about one in 4,500. Um, sometimes, depending on what statistics you're looking at, it's between one in 4,500, one in 5,000. You know, as I think the internet and and more data is available, because this is something that can happen anywhere in the world, um, that, you know, I think we're getting more data that that number is becoming a little bit more common than the original one in 5,000, you know, we're looking at more one in 4,500, maybe even less than that. Mm -hmm. um, 
But uterine factor infertility, you know, isn't just MRKH and kind of the onset of why uterus transplants are interesting is, is you've got hysterectomies and other uterine factor infertility situations. And that you're probably looking at like one in 500. So like a lot more common when you look at like uterine factor infertility as a whole. Yeah. And I want to get into that, but I'm going to, I'm going to go back to when you were 17. Cause I feel like when I was 17, right. The last thing I was thinking about was having kids. I was probably thinking about how do I not have kids? <laughs> so walk us through, walk listeners through like what that process was like for you. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I think in part, uh, you know, it, in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I'm going to have to figure out a way, you know, I want to have a family, whether I'm going to have to save up for an adoption or save up for a surrogacy gestational carrier, you know, when I'm looking at what I want to do for my live, like to do as a job for the rest of my life. Like I want to find a company that offers IVF coverage. Like those are the types of things going through my 17 year old brain. Not like, what am I going to pick out for prom? Like those were such different like mindsets, um, you know, that I, I was kind of, you know, struggling with because it's like, you know, this is now going to affect everything I choose. Like I don't get to organically kind of go through that those processes it's probably like dating and finding a partner and all of that as well it's always going to be in the back of your mind yeah and I I made a very early on decision that like you know I my husband knew I had MRKH before we even started dating like I was very like I'm not gonna hide this because I don't I don't ever want to feel like I'm ashamed of it. Like I want it to be part of who I am and like what I want to want people to know about me. Um, and especially the person you're dating, like I want it to be like full transparency. So, you know, my husband knew I had MRKH before we even really started dating. And he was very like, I think having a supportive partner, like, you know, who's ready to like, you know, someday we'll, you know, look into adoption or surrogacy and like be on board, like from the onset. Cause we started dating when we were like 19 and 20. So like, he was very, very uh, uh, mature for his age for, for kind of being on board with that mindset. That's so beautiful. I love that. So, so you're diagnosed 17, you start thinking of all these things and I'm assuming back then, cause was that, what was that? Like maybe in early 2000? It was, yeah. 2004. Like there was really no internet. There was no support groups. Like Facebook barely existed. Like, and And I would say that like when I was first diagnosed, it was really just like you were by yourself. Like you didn't really have a lot of community. Like you had nobody to talk to. Nobody knew what you were going through. But I would say that as like the the world of social media evolved, like Facebook started to have support groups on there and like being able to connect with people like you or, you know, watching Survivor and finally seeing somebody on Survivor with MRKH, things like that, where it started to become part of like, you know, more accessible, more people talking about it, more people connecting a lot of it through the evolution of, of the internet and social media. Um, you know, that for me was a big thing that I got later in life, but didn't have anything when I was first diagnosed. So yeah, so I'm assuming that first diagnosis, the physician was like, you can find a social carrier, you can do adoption, like those two standard. And I'm, I'm assuming, and I'll let you tell your story, how you even thought to do a uterine transplant. I mean, when you mentioned that and I saw your profile, I was like, oh my, I'm, it's 2023. And I had never even thought of that. And I work in healthcare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think if you have your finger on the pulse of the world, like you, you hear all the stories. So my husband and I, we got married around 2014. And that was when Sweden started doing their living donor uterus transplant trial. 
Um, and the reason Sweden was the first country to kind of really look into this type of uh, fertility treatment is because in Sweden, surrogacy is illegal. So their only choices were adoption. And they felt that they really could show that a uterus transplant works just like any other transplant. Um, and they were able to prove that through births of, you know, multiple children. And then their, um, their, a, a lot of their physicians ended up going to Baylor in Texas to start another living donor uterus transplant program there. And they started having successful transplants in America. Um, and again, this is like, you know, you're looking at like this in like 2014 is Sweden and then, you know, late, uh, you know, 20 teens is kind of this Baylor program happening. And, you know, everybody in the MRKH community and in the hysterectomy communities are talking about this, like sharing articles. Did you see this? Or even just the women themselves are in these groups talking about their processes because they want to share their stories. So, you know, you're hearing a lot about these living donor trials and, and everything that's happening. And, and I remember turning to my husband and saying, this is so cool for like the next generation. Like, this is so amazing that like in the future, people will have this option, never thinking that like that opportunity would like be available to us. Oh, that's amazing. And so I hear you say living donor. And so just to break it down for maybe like people that don't know what like a hysterectomy is or why, and I have a question about that. So obviously a living donor, they would have to undergo a hysterectomy, correct? Correct. And my question is, I made the naive assumption that you would only undergo a hysterectomy or the majority of people undergoing a hysterectomy is because there was something wrong, like maybe like severe endometriosis or something like that. But is that not the case? I mean, I think for these trials, I mean, it also depends on, you know, where you are, but like, you know, for these trials, they're, they're showing there's a medical reason for a person wanting to get a uterus, uh, hysterectomy for a uterus transplant trial. And that kind of is all facilitated through that program. Um, you know, they're, they're hoping, I think the long-term goal is that like, you know, women can have the opportunity to, you know, apply for these hysterectomies that would then be able to be utilized in another person needing a uterus. So like, it's kind of laying that groundwork is another opp opportunity for women to okay. kind of make some so decisions. Like, if like they're done just like childbearing age, they're done. They could say, okay, I want to do an elective hysterectomy and donate. Yeah. And, you know, um, we've seen, you know, I can kind of sort of talk about a little bit, but like we've seen like um, some uterus transplant people from other countries, they've used their mom's uterus, which is kind of really cool. Um, so those, those types of stories from living donors are really interesting. Um, as I said, like, you know, the, the information from all around the world, it's growing, more trials are popping up every day. Um, and, you know, the goal is that the uterus will kind of has its own criteria for both living and deceased. They want it to be sort of in a certain age range to have been shown that it's had pregnancies before. Um, oh. So that's one of the current caveats is that like, they want to make sure you've had successful pre pregnancies, whether you are a living or a deceased donor. Um, so that is something. And then always like a different age range, like certain age range, depending on the trial, they, they sort of set different um, limits of how old you can be to donate as well. Okay. Okay. So you guys see this coming out in the, in the news and you're talking to your husband about it. And at what point did this really become part of your life where you're like, whoa, maybe I actually could benefit from this. So, you know, as I said, like as social media kind of grew, I was very active in the MRKH groups, you know, it's such a wonderful community. I can't rave about that enough because the women that you meet, they're just, 
some of the most amazing warriors I've ever met. Um, but, you know, someone had shared a post that um, Penn Medicine in Philadelphia was doing a deceased donor uterus transplant trial. And at this point, um, there was no deceased donor trials that have occurred yet um, successfully. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, clicked on the links. I'm like, it's, it's Penn. It's like in my backyard. Um, I live, like, I have to go buy it on my way to work every day. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to just look at this. And I'm reading a criteria. And like, I met, like, what the medical conditions they were looking for. I met the age ranges. I met like a lot of the different criteria, which was like I had to have two kidneys, um, which, you know, again, with MRKH, sometimes people don't have two kidneys. So that's something um, that can sometimes be a disqualifier for these types of transplants. Um, you know, healthy, young, married for X amount of time or with a partner for X amount of time. Um, and I said to my husband, like, I'm going to apply. It seems like, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are throwing their name in the hat, like, but you know, I, I feel like it's in our backyard. It's right here. Like what is the harm of trying it and seeing it and, and seeing where this goes? Like we've seen that living um, uterus transplants have like worked in Sweden and in Texas. Like, let's see kind of what this is. And I applied not really thinking like too much, you know, not being too hopeful, but I heard back from the lead investigator, not even like three days later that she wanted to meet with us. So I was like, oh my goodness, okay, this is a lot more um, real than I thought. Um, but, you know, that first meeting was really kind of laying out the groundwork of what an evaluation process, even to be accepted into a uterus transplant um, trial would be. And one of the things in our case is that, you know, we had already started to look into doing, you know, we'd done IVF already at this point. So, that, so that's where I was going to ask. And I feel, I'm sorry for jumping just into the uterine transplant. So going back, you guys had already explored IVF and, and completed yeah. Yeah. So we had already explored IVF, as I said, like one of my biggest things, you know, as a younger person is like, I wanted a, a company that had some great IVF coverage. Um, and I wanted to do it when I was younger too. Um, because at this point, um, you know, we were probably, I, I think it was, I was 29 when we did um, our first round of IVF. And one of the pieces to applying for um, a urine transplant program is specifically for the one I applied to, they were hoping you would have three tested embryos to be able to apply for the program. Oh, wow. So they were looking specifically for women that had already done like egg retrieval. Or if you were going to do the uterus transplant, you would then be expected to go through IVF as well. Okay. So you were like a step ahead. Yeah. So we already had that. We we were we were had just started looking into um, you know, gestational carrier surrogacy programs. Um and we had like really just like had kind of completed that first round of IVF and then sort of was like just starting to do a little bit more research into surrogacy. So, you know, having this uterus transplant kind of pop up, you know, we were like, okay, well, let's apply and see what, see what it's all about. See what, see what's expected, see which path makes the most sense for us. So, you know, we go and we meet with the lead investigator and, you know, we talk through, you know, we've already done IVF um, and had enough embryos for the trial. Um, we would then have to go through evaluations with all of the different teams involved in the trial. 
because you're going to have your surgical teams, you're going to have your transplant coordinating teams, you're going to have your um, your fertility like OB team, and then your maternal fetal medicine like high risk pregnancy team that you're going to talk through. You're going to have your infectious disease team because you know once you have a transplant, you're immunocompromised. You're going to have a pharmacy team of you know talking through all the medications you're going to be on. You're going to have a dietitian because once you have a transplant, your diet changes. So you have all of these meetings with all of these different departments within, you know, the hospital setting. Um, and then the biggest one, which I think is important to really stress is, is the psychological evaluation of it all. And that was probably like six hours of just kind of talking through like their evaluation of, you know, how they kind of, I guess, evaluate that. Um, but, you know, they, they evaluated me, they evaluated my husband, they evaluated us together and really kind of determined whether or not like we were going into this well-informed, you know, and, and about this. So yeah. obviously uterine transplant is an elective transplant procedure. Correct. Are there other organ transplant procedures that are elective or is this one of the few? There are, um, I guess what you would kind of say life enhancing versus life saving. Okay. So think of corneas are transplanted where you don't need corneas to live, okay. but it enhances your life. Um, there's been hand transplants. So again, you don't need your hands to live, but it enhances your life. So, so there's that's so I'm assuming that site process is involved in like the life enhancing. Training. Yes. Okay. Yes. So um and with a clinical trial, because that's what we were embarking on is you go through all these evaluations and then there is a internal um, review, whether they think you're a good candidate for their trial. Um, and so we had passed the internal review and that was really exciting. Uh, but then they send all that information out to an external uh, review where like they don't know anything about you. They've never met you. They're really just looking at all of your stuff on paper and you're just hoping that everything on there is telling the story that this completely unbiased group is going to be reviewing. And how um, many people were they accepting into the trial? So they, for their trial, um, they were hoping to do three to start. Oh my so, goodness. So like not a lot at all. Not a lot at all. Um, and, you know, as I said, like there's, there was really only one other, um, you know, program in the US, uh, Cleveland had a program, but it was on hold at the time when I had applied for the Penn program. Um, but they ended up starting like right around the same time again as well. Um, because they ended up doing a deceased donor transplant that ended up not working. So they kind of paused. Okay. And I know um, you do a phenomenal job introducing you in terms of like the statistics for uterine transplant, but there had only been you know, one or two, correct? Like prior to you for deceased. For, by the time I eventually give birth, there was only two other deceased donor births. Wow. So wild to think about. Um, but when we applied, there were none. Okay. So no deceased donor uterus transplant births. So we were, we knew we'd be probably one of the first few people to kind of undergo this process. Yeah. Which, um, is, which is just even more like so much faith and trust in the system. And like, we really want to try this. And I think that it, it, trust is, I think the perfect word there, because, you know, 
living kind of in the area of the hospital, like it is such a trusted hospital, like meeting with this group, it's not just us like being evaluated by them. It's us also trusting them to be able to do this when they hadn't done it before. Worse. Um, so that, that is always a little nerve wracking when you're the first person to do something like this is that person's first transplant. Like you're like, I have faith in you because like you've, you know what you're doing. Um, you know, there's, there's other ways that they were able to prepare. Like they were able to watch living donor ones in Texas. You know, they were talking throughout the world at different kind of, I believe they call them consortiums, but like different conferences that they would all get together and, and review. And, you know, there was other ways that they kind of prepared for this, even though they hadn't done one yet. They, I felt very uh, trusting of where they were at with what they did to prepare. Yeah. So they send you out to this external review and you're just like probably on pins and I'm sure you feel more invested at this point. Yeah. And I mean, I, I felt that like, okay, if we made the internal review, like there's enough of a case there that like, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll make the external review. And then, um, we did. And so that was like a joyous day of like, okay, we're doing this. Um, we had a lot of conversations with our, you know, physicians, we decided we were going to do one more round of IVF. We were nervous as, you know, kind of looking at the very limited living donor data of how many embryo transfers certain people had before they ended up having a successful pregnancy and trying to do IVF after a uterus transplant. While it's not impossible, it's just a lot harder. So, you know, we, we made the decision, you know, we'll do another round of IVF and then will wait to be listed um, like you would be listed for a deceased transplant of any kind, waiting on that, you know, listing list until you get the call. So, you know, round two of IVF, you know, always a little, it, it's always stressful to do IVF, but IVF with like a uterus transplant in mind is, is, I know, is I feel like all the stress. I know. I want to make sure you get the credit for doing IVF at least, I mean, two times because that in itself is a whole infertility journey on its own, like take away the uterus transplant. Right. So, so that was definitely one, another like added layer to our fertility path. Um, and then, you know, we had, you know, great successes with our, our second round. And then, you know, it was the waiting game of like, when are we going to get this call? And it's that bittersweet piece because you know that that call means that somebody has passed away, but, you know, they were an organ donor and are going to be able to help, you know, not only with all of their life saving organs, but a life enhancing organ transplant. So can I ask, and I'm sure you're super well versed in organ transplant, obviously. Um, so right at this point, um, so say, I, say I'm an organ donor and I met those criteria. If you're an organ donor, are the uterus is included in that? Is That's not like a, or is there no, So they, you, there was an additional, like the, uh, because it's new, there was additional, um, pieces where the family would have to say, yes, you can, you can go ahead and also donate that one as well. So there's a standard organs, but that they reproductive organ. Is that why? I I think it's just because it's really like new. It's it's just like, there's no, there really wasn't much of a precedent. So it was more just like an added layer of like making sure, you know, the, the transplant um, group made sure like, you know, we're, we're, are we allowed to, you know, also use this as well. Um, and, and that, that. 
Well, the only reason I ask is because obviously then the pool of uterine organ donors from deceased, I mean, that's probably much smaller than just the regular organ donor pool. Right. And, you know, there was, um, while it is smaller, you know, living within, you know, for transplants, you can kind of be so many hours away. Um, So kind of being like not too far from New York, not too far from D.C., not too far, like in Philadelphia itself, there's a lot of a larger pool to kind of um, have around um, with like their standard practices of what they would use for any organ. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was a waiting game. But uh, for us, we were only listed for like two months before we got the call, which some people in other trials for both, um, for other places that had deceased donor um, trials, they were they were on there for months and months and months. So for us to be, get that call in two months, that was, that was wild. <laughs> well, it has to be, because anytime you're going through infertility or wanting to grow your family, time is like the hardest part, like that the waiting. waiting. <laughs> yeah, the waiting. And you guys have already been waiting for so long, especially if you had done two rounds of IVF. Oh, he called yeah. and they're like, we're ready. So yeah, they're, they're like, we, we have a match, you know, they obviously are going to have to like, it's a very long process to remove, you know, the organ. And then obviously, so we had some, we about, a, probably I do, I got the call at seven on a, like seven on like a Friday night. And I had like to be at the hospital at like two on Saturday. So like I had some time to get myself together you know, funny, some time. <laughs> it was like less than a day. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I had like a little bit of time to kind of like running out together. the door. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, and part of one of the things, um, that was kind of really wild about our process is that they wanted to document everything. So we actually like had a film crew with us too. Wow. So we go to the hospital and they were going to like record, you know, before the surgery, during the surgery and like check-ins and like things like that throughout the process so that, you know, we can make it more readily available. It's like, it's easier to watch a story than to read an article sometimes online to really see what a person, you know, trying this new path goes through. So it was just a wild kind of day of like, you roll up to there, there's, there's the film crew, there's the doctors, there's everybody. And it's like a big whole group of people all super excited. Um, one of the cute things that the like transplant nurses do is they typically make you a little cookie of the organ you're getting donated. So they made me a little uterus cookie and they were like, wait, this is our first time making a uterus cookie. This is so cool. It was really sweet. Um, but yeah, it it was a wild time. And, you know, then by the time you get to the hospital, we probably waited another 12 13 hours before I actually ended up going into the surgery room. And that was about a 10 hour surgery. Of course, my husband's like freaking out. Cause he's like, you're in there for 10 hours. That's like, what I was going to ask is like, I mean, you're having an organ transplant. Like that is just so significant. And your husband was on board from the beginning. I mean, I think he, he, what I had said to him, and I think that this is why we both felt very passionate about doing it is like, it's not just about showing that like, we want to grow our family. It's about showing that this is a possibility for more people in the future. Like if we can show it, it, it's, if we take that leap of faith, what will it mean for like the next person? So that was kind of his, 
motivator. That's so empowering. That is just insane. And I'm sure he was on pins and needles the whole 10 hours of like, is my wife going to be okay? Because I'm sure it's a very risky surgery. I mean, any surgery is going to have, you know, it's, you know, risks to it, but I, it was no more, um, it was no different really than you would for most transplants, you know, you're still going to have similar kind of, um, processes and similar risks set up, but at least in my case, if for some reason the transplant didn't work, I could still go about my day. Yeah. That's a great, like, so yeah, it was, it was a wild 10 hours, but I came out on the other side my husband was like so nervous, but I, I was cracking jokes the, like the minute they like woke me up and I was like, I have a uterus. This is so weird. And I thought that was so just like you probably your whole life was like, we're thinking like, I'll never have a uterus and, you know, be able to carry a child. And now you're like, whoa, all of this possibility now that it, you have this. It seriously was surreal. Like I felt like this is science fiction. This is a dream. Like this isn't real, but it was. Um, and then, and then the, the harder part, I guess, was just like keeping everything status quo, like that you've got probably about six weeks of sort of recovery from a surgery like that. Um, so I was like home from work for six weeks. And then it's like also then trying to navigate your daily, new daily day, because then you're on immunosuppressants. So I was taking probably around 37 pills a day and like, had all these like app reminders of when I had to take what medication and how much, and you know, you're going through routine blood draws um, to also check all the levels of your medicine. And if you're, you know, showing any, you know, signs for like, um, like if any of your levels are too high, they have to adjust things. So like your kidneys could be stressed. They might want to knock down, like whatever's going to stress out your kidneys, things like that. Um, and then you're going in for routine biopsies because with a uterus transplant, um, they actually transplant the uterus, the donor's cervix, and then a part of the top of their vaginal canal. So it's actually three organs in one that they're transplanting when you think of it like that. Okay. okay. I, so I have they, so many questions, but I, I read, I, I know the end of your story, so I don't want to ask any question until we get there. So I'm going to just like make mental notes, but I have questions about the immunocompromise and the like vitamin, not the vitamins, the supplements and the pills and the medication, but I want to ask those later. So we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, so when you get these, the, the transplant, they're transplanting the uterus, the cervix and the vaginal canal. Um, so they're doing routine biopsies to check for re um, rejections for that. Um, so not only are you getting blood draws and, and, checks that way, but also like actual tissue checks as well, okay. which when you just had a major surgery on all of those areas going in for biopsies, that those are probably the most tedious, like really painful parts of the process. Like those, those are not a walk in the park. They definitely can be really That'd be similar to like, so it would be an endometrial biopsy, correct? Or no, uh, like similar. And there were times where we had, um, different kinds of biopsies like they would go in and try like um test different levels and things like that but like this they're actually like taking like pieces of the cervix that was um don't uh transferred over so that's kind of how they tested it but it was just like thinking of going in for like a routine like pap smear but like 
dialed up. Uh, so I, the reason I ask is because I did an endometrial biopsy during my IVF journey, and that was the most painful, even more than labor. Like I was, it hurt so bad. And so I can only imagine, especially coming out off of like a very intense surgery. Yeah. So I would say like biopsies were definitely probably like my least favorite part of the whole process, but I like to just like put that out there. Cause it's not all sunshines and rainbows. It's not like you get a uterus and you go about your day. Like there's a whole healing part of this. And there's like a lot of checkings that can be kind of intense. Um, so like you have to be mentally prepared that like, it's going to be, you know, hard on you a little bit. Cause not only are you, you know, going through like physical things like that, but also, you know, you're, you're, you're really changing a lot of your body chemistry with all of the medications that you're taking. And, and, you know, I probably, I was on, you know, steroids that I like totally ballooned up and like would, I would have, um, like tremors from like some of the immunocompressants so that you're like shaking sometimes, mm -hmm. like it can be a lot, like just from all of that. And I feel like it has to be a unique transplant too, because it's not like, yes, it's working because you have to then conceive, which in itself with a uterus from birth can be a multi-year journey. Right. So, um, well, for the first step really was to show that the uterus was working in the sense of getting my first period. Oh, oh like, my God, think about that. Yeah. Like, so, waiting. Like, so you're like, Hey, can I have menstrual cycles now? Like, can I have a period? Oh my gosh. So yeah, it took about 37 days before I had my first period. I don't feel like, like that's everything. wrong. That's like clockwork. Yeah. So like they were, it, it was able to work about like a month after. Um, and the goal was to have, uh, a frozen embryo transfer after six months of having the uterus and having successful menstrual cycles. Okay. So, you know, I had a wild to experience for you after. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Because it wasn't just like, okay, I'm having my first period at 32, which is like wild. Um, but also like you're having to give every single detail about what's happening to like a whole group of people and like sending them photos. Like this is oh. so weird sometimes, but like, you're like, this is all for science, <laughs> but you know, here we are. Um, and then just like really, you know, journaling that the, that time and like every symptom I felt every situation like how uh, it was it was it was very documented we were very thorough and just kind of sharing have you met anybody that's gone through a similar experience as you now that you're far oh yes so all a lot of our are the women who have had either living or deceased donor transplants like I started to reach out to some of the living donor uh women through Facebook and talk to them about their, their experiences. Cause everybody's, you know, it's such a small sample size still like our experiences can be really different. Um, but I, I was always turning to them and asking them questions like, is this like, did you have this happen to you? Like, is this normal? Um, and you know, I now try to be that person for, for other people who are going through it now, because there's not many people to ask like, uh, you know, friend to friend question versus like a medical question, you know, like, wow, this is so interesting to me. Like, I mean, you're, you're incredible that this is incredible. Well, thank you. And and that's why I like to, to try to, to share the story as much as I can, because you never know who's going to be like listening and reach out and, you know, hear more about this 
being an option. Yeah. And it's so just, it's so funny. Like our whole mission is to be inclusive to family building. We are inclusive to family building. We're not, our podcast isn't about like IVF or any of that. It's everything. And to hear your story, I'm like, never in my wildest dreams would I think I'm being inclusive of uterine, you know, like uterine transplant. Here's one more thing to the pot that is now an option for women. And I'm super excited about it. So, okay, let's, so you had six, six cycles and now you're ready to transfer. Yeah. So, um, we, we go in for the transfer. Um, it, you know, the, the, it happened on a Sunday. So it was like, not actually as crazy as other times we've gone to the hospital, but it was still like a good chunk of people there. Um, you know, we go in for the transfer and then you get the two week wait, which everybody who has a transfer knows that those two weeks are probably some of the hardest weeks. Like I would say waiting those two weeks was harder than waiting for the call for the uterus because like, it was like too real now, like that I could be pregnant, but I was definitely like, my doctors were, were joking, like, try not to do pregnancy tests. Like, we'll call you with your results. Like, like, let's do this like the old fashioned way. And I was like, okay. So I was like, good. I did not do any pregnancy tests. I was waiting for like their call of like my blood work. Um, and one of the things my husband and I wanted to do is we were going to record the call because we wanted to just like have that. Um, so my husband had the, the, the phone recording as we got the call from our doctor and she's like, I'm cutting right to the chase. You're pregnant. And we just are sobbing. Like it is so surreal to have somebody say to you, you're pregnant when for 15 years you were told you would never be pregnant yourself. I mean, I feel like I could cry and I just met you and you lived with like, that. 15 years. I mean, yeah, it's not like a, oh, you had infertility and you're not going to get pregnant, but then like, there's a chance you anatomically could not get pregnant. Right. I was told never, never, never. And then here I am hearing these words. And I was like, this is surreal. Like we we cried. Yeah. And hearing how passionate you are about helping other women and being a pioneer and like trying these new technologies I'm sure another piece of that is wow everything I just went through worked and it can be used for other women a hundred percent like for us it wasn't just like that I was pregnant but like it it was working and like this could be an option for the next person so you know the team was thrilled too I bet that just the celebration all around was (laughs) insane I I I have to say, like, it's just, it was such an amazing team to work with. Everybody was just so excited, you know, and then you kind of go from the happy high of, okay, you're pregnant. Now you're going to have a high risk pregnancy. Yeah. So that, that that was probably the, the, then it was like, okay, let's, let's be cautiously optimistic was kind of the, like, term of the trial is like everybody was just like cautiously optimistic because women from loss and infertility can relate we they use that with us all the time be cautiously optimistic (laughs) yes because again you know at this point um by the time I was pregnant the first deceased donor um baby was born in Brazil but it was really just an anonymous like announcement not a there was a ton of like medical case information, but not like their story or, or who they were. Yeah. So nobody I could talk to about it, but yeah. you know, one person already had a baby and now I'm being told I'm pregnant. 
Like, that's amazing. Um, and honestly, like, my, you know, first two trimesters were really smooth. Like, I didn't really have any morning sickness. Like, um, other than, you know, with having MRKH and being immunocompromised and just kind of my own like medical history, I ended up getting a lot more UTIs during the process. So that was a little scary. But for the most part, like that was kind of like the big things that happened sort of in that early time. Can I ask, so obviously immunocompromised, did you have to continue taking the immune medication during the pregnancy? Yes. So they were using immunocompromising medications that they would use for, you know, people who had like liver, kidney, heart transplants and were wanting to be pregnant. So like, they know that like these were, there are some immunocompromising medications that can not be great for pregnancy, but these ones are what they use for women who've had other organs transplanted and then had pregnancies. So there was a lot more data on like, we know that using these, um, uh, I was on tacrolimus and uh, azathioprine during my pregnancy and those like they use those in other pregnancies for for women of other transplant organs okay okay that makes sense I never really thought about that but of course yeah so like there was there was some groundworks of that but I think the thing that was really exciting for us to not only just being pregnant but like being able to learn more just in general like they are taking a lot more data from all the women who go through a lot of these trials to kind of not only think about answering, you know, regular pregnancy questions, but like, why is it that uh, a fetus doesn't get rejected by its mother when it's, you know, like foreign to that person, but, you know, an organ does. And like, can we figure that out from these types of trials? Like, how do we, because, you know, I've had friends who've had like, you know, kidney or liver transplants, things like that they have to be on the immunosuppression for life. And like after 15 years, that can really, you know, have, you know, long-term effects, like, you know, especially people who are younger who have transplants, there's just so much about that immunocompromising that can just have long-term effects that like maybe one day that won't be the case, but like, this is one area maybe that they'll be able to figure that out. So I was happy to also give that extra layer of science to like another area to study. Absolutely. And yeah, and I know, again, I'm going to save my questions for the end (laughs) so I don't ruin the story. So uh, I heard you say the first two trimesters were pretty uneventful other than all of the testing and then you get into the third. Yeah, so the third trimester, I started having hypertension, which was like, you know, really scary having high blood pressure. You know, I was trying to take it a lot more easier. Um, But then, you know, after kind of having hypertension, I then had gestational diabetes. So that was also another like stressor. Um, And then uh, one day I was in a routine checkup. Um, I had extremely high blood pressure and they're like, we're going to keep you just make sure. Um, So they like had me up in like the labor, like triage room. Like I was like strapped up with a little monitor and they then said um, they were worried, you know, it could be a sign of preeclampsia. Um, so we were just kind of hanging out monitoring and then I got a really bad headache and that's kind of like a big red flag for preeclampsia. And so, you know, they, I was far enough along that they're like, okay, you know, we can 
you know, do a few more things and then, you know, we could do the C-section. Like we, we can, we can, you know, deliver this baby. And, you know, I didn't know if I was having a, a boy or a girl. I wanted to be surprised. Like I wanted everyone to kind of have that moment of like, yeah, surprise. Um, so yeah, we, we, we were go time. Like baby was going to be, be here soon. So, um, you you didn't transplant. You have to have a C-section, right? Like that is across the board. Okay. Yes. You have to have a C-section. Um, you also always have to have frozen embryo transfers. They don't connect the fallopian tubes to the uterus. So those are kind of just two things to think about. Like you'll always always have have to do IVF and, and cesarean. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, with kind of that really stressful sort of ending, you know, Transplant programs, they give you the options, like you can try for another child, um, but really depends on how you feel and how comfortable you feel with how healthy you are at the time. And I just did not feel that I could make it through another pregnancy that, you know, we made the unanimous decision that like we would go through this once and we were just happy to have a baby. Like we were told we would never have a child. Like I'm just happy to have a baby. Um, so, you know, we go in and of course we couldn't even have the delivery in a regular labor room. We had to do it in like a, like a cardiatric like one where, cause there was like 50 people in there. Cause you've got like every team possible ready to do whatever they're going to do. And then you have a whole like, um, uh, like pediatric team there too for the baby. And like, there's the camera crew, of course, because they're documenting everything. Um, And so, you know, we're in this like giant room of like 30 people ready to like have this baby. And um, my husband and I are just like in awe that this is happening. Um, You know, nervous about the preeclampsia, but like excited to meet our child. And so, you know, they, they do the C-section. and then my husband gets to tell the room it's a boy. And, oh, congratulations. Um, and we named him Ben um, since he was going to be uh, one of the first uh, babies in Philly. We thought like, you know, we were big soccer fans. So we're always at the Union Games sitting in the Sons of Ben section and like love, love the, the historical tie back to Ben Franklin being a famous Philadelphian. So that was kind of our inspiration. That's, I love that. And and I'm assuming that he had no complications. He just So uh, early. So what they what they term it like in the NICU is like a feeder and grower. Like he's too small to like travel home, but like he just has to get bigger. And like when they're born early, sometimes they don't understand how to eat from a bottle. So they still have food, t- like tube feeding. Yeah. So like we did a lot of practicing with like uh, you know, the staff there, they had like lactation consultants and all of these additional like supporters to like really help us like get him ready to go home when he was, you know, a little bit bigger. Yeah. So. Okay. So going back, cause I held all my questions for this. I didn't want to like spoil the ending. So you had a hysterectomy after the birth, correct? Right. It was literally like, here's your child. We're going to knock you out and we're going to keep going. That's okay. So, so many questions. The very first question, and I was just reading up on this is, and you mentioned it. So you're really only allowed that right now to try two times. Is that just safety and. Yeah. The, the, the big thing is there's immunocompromising drugs. It's just a lot on your body and, you know, they really don't um, want to keep having to support like this, this enhancing organ for too long because, you know, it's a lot on your body. 
they don't want you on these drugs for too long. Like it, if you don't have to be. So that's, so that exactly, was that's my second question. And I wanted to ask it back when I mentioned it, just because I feel like if, a, if someone was listening to this, like, okay, wait, this maybe is an option for me. And then they hear that you have to go on these immunocompromising drugs. They're like, oh, so for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to say like, oh, well, she had it taken, removed. Basically you had it removed. I'm sure there was a taper period, but today in your, in your daily life, you're not on anything. Well, anything for yeah. immunocompromised. Right? The only lingering thing that I, I take is baby aspirin. That's it. Wow. So what? like back, so back cool. to normal health levels, like back to everything, like, and they follow you two years afterwards to test, just, just make sure everything's kind of back to status quo where you were when you started. Honestly, I would say, you know, I'm probably healthier probably now because I learned so many healthy habits yeah. from being like kind of in, in this process. Like I definitely drink more water and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So how old's your son now? He's three. That's amazing. And you just, do you feel like a lot, I mean, you must feel like a lot of that's in, in the rear view mirror and now you have your son and like, I know it, it, it feels surreal. Sometimes my husband and I look at each other and be like, you know, he's such a blessing and like, oh my gosh, like we had, we did a uterus transplant. Like, who are we? Um, it doesn't seem real sometimes, but I would say that nowadays the big thing that, you know, um, my surgeon actually from Penn, she actually ended up starting her own program. So not a trial anymore, but there's an actual program um, in UAB. So I remember she reached out to me and she's like, hey, can you share this in your Facebook groups? Like that's how we got some of our best candidates or like online or on social media. So, um, you know, after sharing that, one of the most beautiful things is like, you know, the women who then ended up applying for that program, like talked to me all the time. It's like kind of paying it forward to the women who, you know, helped me through my journey. Um, and, you know, I would say that like, we're each other's cheerleaders for sure. Like that, and that's kind of where my advocacy now is just showing like, Hey, this is like a possibility. And like, there's more and more programs popping up, not only in America, you know, Texas children hospital in Houston is starting a program. And one of the really cool things about their program is they're actually going to offer IVF as part of the program as well. So you won't have to fund, your IVF process there, if you're accepted into their program, IVF is part of that. That's so like that to, to some people, like that was a barrier that now programs are starting to also think about as well. Um, and, you know, if you're following along or want to follow along on some journeys, you know, there's a lot of really great social media um, people to follow. You know, there's uh, a few that just happened in Australia. So Australia just had another transplant, like, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago at this point um, and following their process, which is really cool to do in real time if you're like interested. Um, and then as I said, there's oh, so oh, many. Share like the social media sites and then I would love to link um, the programs. I know you mentioned, um, you said UAB, was that? A yeah, UAB, Texas Children's, there's one at Baylor and then Cleveland Clinic and then UPenn. And then the one place I'd like to always just say check is um, clinicaltrials.gov is constantly posting clinical trials. So not only ones in America, but like it's constantly refreshed for all over the world. You know, France just had, you know, another uterus transplant baby birth, you know, uh, Spain, Italy, India. You know, it's really growing and it's so cool. So cool. And I hear you talk about finances and obviously I'm making the assumption, but with the trial, is it, is it funded by the. Yeah. So the way they designated it for my trial and it's different really at every, um, 
hospital kind of how they want to do the financial pieces. So that's definitely something to talk about if you are really considering a specific place. Um, for my trial, anything that was related back to the transplant was covered through the program. If anything was related to the pregnancy, we would run it through insurance or I would pay for it myself. And then obviously IVF was to be previously done really before being listed for a transplant. So that would have been on your own as well. But as I said, every program's a little different. Now some programs are including IVF. So it's definitely something that depending on where you are and you know, kind of your interest levels, these programs, some of them are only deceased donors. Some are both styles. Um, I know my program at Penn ended up doing um, two deceased and a living. Um, and some really beautiful stories about the living donors and like, you know, kind of how everybody sort of becomes one big happy family with those as well. So that's beautiful. And I just think, you know, because surrogacy gestational carrier is a hundred, 150,000 flat really just for that is what the average cost is. And so I think a lot of women, this would be a really great option for, I mean, not, there's probably not a lot of people that just have $150,000 to spend. Um, so this is just, this is so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your story and continue to advocate for uterine transplant. Well, thank you for letting me be able to kind of share it and, and talk about, um, you know, what's happening because I think, you know, the more people who are able to see this talked about, know about it, it's not as so surreal or so science fiction. It's real, it's happening and, and more and more babies are being born and it's such a beautiful path to parenthood. It's a new option and it just, it warms my heart that I can share that. Well, thank you. Do you have anything else? I mean, you've shared so much with our listeners. Do you have anything else leave, leaving notes, leaving thoughts you want to share maybe with a woman that's listening, thinking, you know, I have MRKH, like, wow, this is something I wasn't thinking about. And maybe I'm going to reach out. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is, is don't, don't, uh, you know, keep yourself sort of in, in what other people told you your life was going to be like, if you're passionate about pursuing a different path to, to how you want to build your family, I think you should go for it. It, it can be really scary, but if you put your mind to something and really work with a great team, like it can have the best results. So thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm going to link your Instagram if that's okay. And I will link all the other um, programs too in our show notes.